Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet. Today's guest is Dr. Jason Schiffman. He is a medical doctor who is the founder and director of the Camden Center, which is a very sophisticated, very out of the box, I will say, program that addresses the struggles of those with substance use and co-occurring disorders. And his expertise comes both as a medical doctor and with a master's in business administration in psychiatry from UCLA. He has served as the chief resident at UCLA for anxiety disorders programming, and he brings that to his work. And more than that, he is a really interesting guest. So thank you today for coming, Dr. Schiffman. Can I call you Jason? Please do, and thank you for having me. You're welcome. So first question, you're located, your center, the Camden Center is located in both LA and in San Francisco, correct? That is correct, yes. So in your LA program, my understanding is you have pretty high profile clients, you have some celebrities, you have people who on an average day, other people might know their names, is that right? Yeah, I would not say that they are the um, majority of the patients that we treat, but they definitely constitute a certain percentage of our patient population. Um, and I think that is just a consequence of the fact that uh, by, be, by virtue of being in Los Angeles, we're kind of at the epicenter of the entertainment industry. Um, so we do, we do tend to have a fair number of celebrities that we treat. And, you know, that patient population comes with certain challenges. Well, that's really what I wanted to ask. Before we go anywhere else, do celebrities struggle differently than the rest of us? I don't think they struggle differently than the rest of us. I think, to be honest with you, they struggle almost exactly the same as the rest of us. Uh, and, um, and to the extent that uh, they are in the public eye uh, and have access to things that celebrity affords them, I think actually to some degree that makes it actually a little bit more challenging for them to recover. Um, not, it's not insurmountable, um, but I think to answer your question, the origins and the processes that result in all of us who develop mental health or addictive disorders, uh, those are the same processes that are there um, for, for folks. I mean, like family of origin, other diagnosis, neural wiring, temperament, trauma, all of those things actually happen to celebrities too, huh? Yeah. And in fact, actually, I would even go a step further and say that for um, most individuals that end up becoming successful in the entertainment industry, the drive that has enabled them to become successful in the entertainment industry actually also has its origins or has the same origin as the thing that leads to depression, anxiety, and substance use. So the driver that helps them develop fame is the very same driver that may actually create the struggle. 
That's right. And to me, what that is, is essentially some experience of developmental trauma, you know, that results in, you know, what uh, there was a psychoanalyst called Michael Ballant who talked about uh, this idea of there being a basic fault, which is sort of the thing that um, all children make up about themselves if there's a loss of attachment or uh, problems with attachment that, you know, it's, it, it may be a false narrative that they create, but it's this idea of what was wrong with me that I was insufficiently lovable in order for the attachment to my caregivers to be maintained or, or attachment to my peers. Um, of course, we all have some degree of this. Um, and, you know, the, to the extent that 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 the, that the shame associated with that basic fault becomes a predominant component of our sense of self, we become driven to do things to make the pain of that go away. And those things can be drugs, alcohol, affirmation from other people. Um, and that's the connection, I think, to, um, you know, the drive that, that can lead people to have a, a sufficient amount of work ethic and drive to become famous. And also the same thing that can drive them to um, develop shame-related emotions like depression and anxiety, and then seek out ways of numbing that out through drugs, alcohol, food, et cetera. Of course, of course. Question, is image management a real barrier for some celebrities to get the help they actually need? Or would you say that the culture is such that it promotes that kind of help? You know, it's a really good question. I think that the landscape is changing. So I think that even just five, 10 years ago, uh, there was still enough stigma associated with um, mental health problems and addiction that the vast majority of people in the public eye would be very careful if they did seek out treatment to make sure that that fact was kept out of public awareness. Um, I do see that there is a shifting landscape now. I think that there have fortunately been enough celebrities that have sort of come out openly about their own struggles with mental health and, addic and addiction uh, that the stigma both for other celebrities and for, for um, the population in general is, is decreasing. Um, I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, I think because sometimes, you know, when someone who is in the public eye comes out as being in recovery, that process can sort of be co-opted by that same sort of affirmation seeking drive that they have. And then their being in recovery sort of becomes part of their image. And then that becomes a, an actual struggle for them to authentically heal the sense of self-related issues that need to get addressed. That's right. I can see how that would happen. Um, do you have a celebrity in mind that has come out, not one you've necessarily treated, but in the mental health space and really owned their struggle that has been helpful for other people? Do you have one of those people that you think of? You know, I, I do think that fortunately, um, and particularly recently, there have just been a lot of celebrities doing what I consider to be a very um, significant and important public service by being open um, about their own struggles with addiction and mental health, um, which again, I think pulls these issues that are pervasive um, in, in our culture much more into the light and makes them viewed less as things to hide and be ashamed of and more just conceptualized as um, other other health care problems in the same way that we would look at, you know, diabetes or, or other, you know, more biologically based problems. I like it. Um, so, question. Avoiding that question. I have, 
Yeah. Now, that was a good answer. I can think of, you know, I watch my news feed and I see um, celebrities and not just celebrities, people in with higher profile names coming out and talking about the struggles in their family and struggles with themselves. And it, it makes me feel like we are making progress as a culture. So that is, I see that as helpful. Um, question I have for somebody, whether it's a celebrity, high profile client, person of wealth, often they are surrounded by or have a staff of people. We can call them the support staff. We can call them the bit players. We can call them the entourage. But in those systems, because those must be akin to a family system that I think of when I think of who, are they helpful or do they actually hinder mental health? Yeah, well, I think that you get you get um, examples across the spectrum. I think that for many um, individuals that are um, in the public eye, and actually, I would I don't know that this necessarily applies only to people who are successful in the entertainment industry. I think this probably is also the case for anyone for whom the people that work for them may have incentives that aren't necessarily aligned with what's in the best interest of the individual. And I think, you know, that does, I think that happens very frequently um, for individuals in the entertainment industry where um, the, those around them have their material or financial well-being tied to um, uh, supporting elements of their of, of the celebrity that maybe are not particularly uh, helpful in terms of their um, mental health or recovery in other ways. So it is um, it is often a problem. But the other thing that I have often found is that there's usually at least a few people. Um, for everyone um, who really authentically care about that person and are in a, in a position to, to really actually help support them do what's in their best interest. And that, those are usually the individuals within the system that you want to sort of home in on and identify and then use as allies. I would imagine, I mean, when I work with a family, my goal is always to get the system healthy as well as the individual. I would think that in these systems, and I've worked with some of them where there is a support staff in the mix to do some real work with them to be able to um, educate, support them to do work which promotes mental health and not just comfort. I would yeah, think that. I think that's absolutely right. And I think what's also difficult is, you know, most people who use, for example, who use drugs or alcohol or alcohol or drugs, most people who use drugs um, don't end up having a problem with them, right? The vast majority of people who drink alcohol don't become alcoholics. The vast majority of people right. who use cannabis products don't become cannabis addicts. Um, you know, the vast majority of people who are prescribed or take benzodiazepines don't develop a problem with them. And so, you know, we all every one of us interprets the world through the lens of our own experience. And I do think that a lot of times what's difficult for people within the inner circle of somebody who has an addiction, whether they're famous or not, to understand is that that person's relationship to their substance use can be very, very different than the other individual's relationship to substance use. It's, it's very difficult for somebody who has never experienced an addiction to understand how someone with an addiction could make decisions about their use of, of that substance um, 
that would be so fundamentally de detrimental to their own best interests. Um, and so I think that often is one of the problems. It's not necessarily always that, you know, you have these hangers ons that are, are um, you know, nefarious and only acting in their own best interest. Um, I think it is also just a consequence of the fact that for most people, their relationship with the substance does not involve an addictive relationship to that. And so they make, they project their own relationship and their own understanding about that substance or that behavior onto, you know, the, the, the patients. And unfortunately, you know, there's a huge difference between having an addictive relationship to a substance or behavior and having a non-addictive relationship to it. Right. I can see what you're saying. And somebody's out with somebody and says, come on, tonight, you're just going to have two. You're going to prove to yourself that you don't need more than two. I could see that happening. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I also think that to some degree, you know, the, the, the historical trajectory of cannabis legalization in the country, you know, took this sort of weird detour through medical uh, cannabis. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a generation of people who, who, were exposed to information about sort of the medicinal benefits or the or or the how benign cannabis can be that was actually an overreaction to the misinformation about cannabis that was sort of put out by the government prior to that right so we sort of were on this pendulum swing from when i was growing up you know cannabis products were which was essentially just marijuana back then you know was put in the same bucket as cocaine and heroin is this terrible drug, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. And there was no difference made between um, much more dangerous drugs um, and cannabis. Um, and so I think that what ended up happening uh, in the trajectory of legalization, which we're still on, uh, is that there was sort of this counter um, position that was taken of, look, cannabis is completely benign. It's a panacea. It's good for gout. It's good for anxiety. It's good for insomnia. It's good for everything. And it's completely harmless. Um, and that's also not true. You know, um, the, the, the reality about cannabis is that, you know, it absolutely from a toxicity standpoint is probably one of the least harmful uh, drugs that people do. Um, but there are risks associated with it. And just like people can become alcoholics, people, but most people don't, people can absolutely become cannabis addicts, even though most people don't. That makes sense. Um, so you run a treatment program that is a little bit different, but you still use some group work at the Camden Center. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. At Camden, actually, I think the thing that makes us unique is that we don't have any set tracks or programs. So every patient has a unique team that works with them. And so some people are all in all individual treatments. Some people have groups, but the decision about what treatment modalities they're participating in is just made clinically. Um, so it's whatever each person needs. That's helpful. So tell me, do you find that somebody in a high profile position in the world has a difficult time? I mean, not just one, I, you know, I'm thinking about people, but some will do fine, some will not. But in general, that urge to be special to be seen, to be big, does that actually become a problem when they're actually in treatment? You know, it's interesting. I find that there is a problem related to having celebrities in, in group therapy, but it's not that. Um, it's not usually okay. that they're so, it's not usually that they're so narcissistic that they just need to and that they take over the group and that they just need adoration and it 
Um, in fact, it's often quite the opposite. It's usually um, they have a desire to actually be within a group setting and are um, either realistically or unrealistically sort of prohibited from doing so because they worry about the exposure. Um, if they're, you know, if, if, if it's a secret that they're in treatment, then then obviously putting them in groups is problematic. Um, and I think the other issue as well has mostly to do with the response of the other group members, right? So, um, you know, and this is something that is, is absolutely not an insurmountable problem, but it is a challenge and it's something that you know, can be can be managed in better ways or worse ways. But, you know, oftentimes um, putting a celebrity in a group therapy session um, can cause problems for this for the in terms of the dynamic between that person and the other group members, either the other group members feel um, inhibited from being completely open and honest or they become starstruck or um, there is a feeling on the part of the celebrity that they can't really just be their authentic selves because everybody's interacting with them via their image. Um, so it is a challenge. Um, but again, I, I think that the issue is less about sort of a, a feeling of, typically less about a, a feeling of entitlement and not wanting to sort of be amongst the commoners, I guess. <laughs> That's not usually the issue. It's, it's, yeah. it's usually other, other challenges. But, but you're, you're right in identifying that Group therapy can be a very vital component of recovery, particularly from addiction. Um, and it, there are challenges that are associated with that when somebody's famous. Um, fortunately, in Los Angeles, you know, I think I, I, I think almost everyone in the entertainment industry is either in active addiction or in recovery. So, um, yeah. So, 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 fortunately, in Los Angeles, I mean, obviously that's an overstatement, but there are quite a few um, uh, twelve-step meetings. Uh, within uh, the Los Angeles area that are private meetings um, where um, uh, people with special um, privacy needs, you know, can have those accommodated. What is also interesting, though, is that, you know, what usually ends up happening is, is, is that once people are really much better and healed, um, you, they tend to just sort of go to regular meetings and show up and be less preoccupied with sort of what the consequences are of being seen. So that's great. That's great. Yeah. So I am a old fan of a show on public radio called Car Talk. And at the end of Car Talk, they talked, they used to close the podcast with you've wasted another half an hour talking to us. But I don't feel like we, have, I feel like we have had this amazing half an hour listening to you and talking with you. Tell me what if you were gonna leave this audience with one thing, what would it be today? You know, the core of what we're trying to do in mental health care is to bring people to a state or place that is actually just a place of health and balance. And it's it has to do with giving people the core belief, the axiomatic belief, meaning belief without proof, that they are fundamentally a valid, lovable, good person. Um, and that goes whether the person's famous or not famous or tall or short or fat or thin or whatever, you know, ultimately, um, with the exception of, of the more neurologically mediated 
mental health conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, which are, you know, that's a hard, those are hardware problems. Those are problems where the, the, the brain, the, the organ of the brain isn't functioning well. Um, but for pretty much all of the other mental health conditions and the problems that come from the dysfunctional coping mechanisms that we use to manage those conditions, at the core of what's there is essentially a sense of self where there's a belief that there's something, um, a, a basic fault that makes us essentially unlovable or invalid or, and, and, and ultimately, even though people present for treatment because of these crises that unfold, um, really the true work that is needing to be done underneath all of that is getting down to what is that, what is that person's core belief about themselves and how do we help people learn the skill of treating themselves the way a healthy, loving parent treats their child, which is to love them just because of who they are, not because of what they do or because of what they don't do, right? Like a healthy, loving parent, you know, doesn't wait to see if their kid's good at piano or becomes a doctor to decide whether they love them or not, right? You know, um, and they don't stop loving them just because they did something wrong, right? right. So that, that to me, I think is, is not just for this podcast, but to me, that feels like the most important message in terms of, you know, what is it that we're trying to do in mental health care? Um, and, um, you know, what, what, what ultimately is, is the, the, the mechanism of healing that is behind or underneath <laughs> how people recover from these things that lead to the crises that make them present for treatment. I would imagine that when somebody has that internal sense of I am valuable, I am lovable, all of those things, they then have the capacity to be authentic. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think fundamentally, you know, what it means to be not authentic derives from the sense that there's something wrong. embarrassing, shameful, or wrong with me. And therefore, in order to fix that or protect myself from being judged for that flaw, I need to, pres I need to do or be something different. Um, and it's, you know, and, and I, I think fundamentally there is a vulnerability to just being who you are. Um, and I think, you know, if you get sort of good enough parenting and stable enough attachment growing up, you get enough of that validation to be comfortable in that vulnerability. But for a lot of us, you know, if, if, if there was beneath the threshold amount of validation and attachment security that we needed, then we walk around kind of constantly vigilant about being exposed for and, and seen for being flawed or bad. And that's fundamentally, again, like I said, whether, whether, you're, whether you're famous or not, or whether no matter, no matter who you are, that's, that's ultimately, I think, um, what is the foundation of emotional well-being is to be able to get to that space. So. I love that. Thank you, Dr. Schiffman. Appreciate you joining us today. You have spent this last half an hour listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast or even watching if you've been on video. Um, if you have enjoyed this, please like us on your platform of choice and we look forward to talking, listening next week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.